0: There's so much power in women sharing their stories, their experiences with diseases, so much knowledge to really be tapped there. And I think smart researchers would recognize that there there is so much untapped kind of potential to do research on women's conditions and also to kind of just ask women who have often been living with conditions that have been really under-researched for so long that they are really the true experts at this point. Um, There's just so much data that could be mined there.
1: Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast, all about reinventing your health with safer, cheaper, more effective natural solutions and powerful lifestyle changes so that you become the CEO of your health. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder. Have you ever wondered why doctors may have dismissed some of your symptoms or ignored them altogether and sent you away with no true answers? I can't tell you how many stories from women like yourself I've heard since I started this decade long journey into women's health. Literally, thousands of women have walked out of doctors' offices feeling unsupported, unheard, and unvalidated. I myself have dealt with the dismissal of my symptoms and given inadequate recommendations. And it was because of a doctor's relatively lazy recommendations 10 years ago that led me down this path. Now, during that time, I went to get a hormone panel done. And after running my labs, it was very clear that my stress hormones and reproductive hormones were deregulated. But when I was given a solution, it came in the form of two scripts, birth control and Xanax. I remember looking down at these prescriptions and knew deep down that they were not going to get me well. I knew that it was time to dig into the research and figure out exactly how to heal my hormones and get to the root cause. Luckily, I had a background in biochemistry as a scientist and I was a bulldog for research. I knew that there had to be another solution, a real solution. Unfortunately, my story is not unique. And that's why I brought on author and journalist Maya Dunzenberry for today's episode. When I heard about her book, Doing Harm, I knew that I wanted to share her insight with you. I want to share a little bit about her book really quickly to provide some background for this interview. Maya's book, Doing Harm, explores the deep and systemic problems that underlie women's experiences of feeling dismissed in the medical system. Women have been discharged from the emergency room mid-heart attack with a prescription for anti-anxiety meds, while others with autoimmune diseases have been labeled chronic complainers for years before being properly diagnosed. Women with endometriosis have been told that they are just overreacting to normal menstrual cramps, while still others have contested illnesses like chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia that, dodged by psychosomatic suspicions, have yet to be fully accepted as real diseases by the whole of the profession. This is a powerful eye-opening read for patients and health practitioners alike. Doing harm shows how women suffer because the medical community knows relatively less about their diseases and bodies and too often doesn't trust their report of their symptoms. The research community has neglected conditions that disproportionately affect women and has paid little attention to the biological differences between the sexes and everything from drug metabolism to disease risk factors, even the symptoms of heart attack. Meanwhile, a long history of viewing women as especially prone to quote-unquote hysteria reverberates to the present day, leaving women battling against the stereotype that they're hypochondriacs whose ailments are likely to be all in their heads. Now, what does this all mean? Well, number one, we we are not making it up in our heads, and a lot of changes in the healthcare system need to happen before we consistently receive care that we deserve. In the meantime, that's why this podcast exists. I created this podcast so that you can feel more prepared and ready to have tough conversations and advocate for yourself and to help give you the tools to start diving in and supporting your body naturally. There is so much that we can do every day to support our overall health, as you learn every single week here on the Essentially You podcast. Now, before we jump into this powerful interview with Maya, I want to quickly celebrate your wins, because yes, although I just dumped a little doom and gloom on you, there are always wins to celebrate. One particular healing rock star is Marie Vasquez, and I'm excited to shout out her win as she shared on Instagram uh, about a week or so ago. Here she said, All my life, I have never really understood how my menstrual cycle worked and I had no idea that I could understand it so well that I could plan my life around the time of the month based on my hormone levels. This was eye-opening to me, and I have Dr. Marisa to thank on her podcast. Thank you, Marisa, for shedding light on my period and cycle and giving me some serious ownership. Well, Marie, I am so grateful for your big win, girl understanding our bodies and how to create amazing health is what it's all about. If you're listening, Marie, I would love to gift you my superwoman blend. It is perfect for your menstrual cycle and All the other things that make us super women. Feel free to reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram. Instagram, it's at Dr. Marisa, D R M A R I Z A. Now, fellow podcasters, if you're listening right now, I would absolutely love to shout you out, and I can't tell you how much your messages mean to me. You can easily reach out to me via Instagram, Facebook, or simply review the Essentially You podcast on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you love to plug into. That way, we can change the world by giving women solutions at their fingertips and providing them much-needed information for women to take to their doctors. In today's world, we got to become the CEO of Our Health. Now let's jump into this powerful and thought-provoking interview with Maya Dunzenberry. But first, I would love to sing her praises. Maya Dudsenberry is a journalist and the author of Doing Harm: The Truth About How Bad Medicine and Lazy Science Leave Women Dismissed, Misdiagnosed, and Sick. A New York Times editor's choice pick, Doing Harm was named one of the best books of 2018 by NPR. Meyer has been an editorial director for Feministing.com and has written for publications like Mother Jones, Cosmopolitan Slate, and The Atlantic. Welcome to the Essentially You podcast, Maya Dunsenberry. How are you doing today, girl? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. It is such a pleasure. You have no idea how much I have been loving your book. I've been reading it every single day, getting ready for this interview. I don't go in at as much depth, and I've been so appreciative of the research that you've done. This is definitely an area that I talk to my audience about. So it is such an honor to get to have you on today.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I mean, it's
1: such an important topic. We should all be talking about it more. We absolutely should. And what we're going to be talking about for for our listeners today is how gender bias in the medical system is impacting women today. And most importantly, we're going to be talking about Maya's book, Doing Harm, The Truth About How Bad Medicine and Lazy Science Leave Women Dismissed, Misdiagnosed, and Sick. Now, This book is transformational. It just really sheds light on what's going on, you know, why women feel so dismissed and ignored. What was the journey? What was the impetus for you to want to dive so deeply into this topic?
0: So uh, my journey kind of started when I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis several years ago. At that point, you know, I had been a a really healthy 20-something and just hadn't given a lot of thought to how well the medical system was equipped to care for me if I actually became sick. You know, I I mostly saw doctors for routine reproductive health care, and I was a really strong feminist and always wrote about a lot of reproductive health issues, but... I hadn't had the personal experience yet to really broaden my lens to think about how gender bias was affecting medicine more broadly than reproductive health issues But after I was was diagnosed I started learning a lot about autoimmune diseases started realizing how common they are among women And also started to find that so many other autoimmune patients often had these long diagnostic delays You know went many years saw many doctors before they were finally taken seriously I myself actually had a pretty quick and and easy time getting diagnosed. But as I kind of tuned into the problem, I I started to feel like so many women I knew had similar stories, whether it was with autoimmune diseases or other conditions where they really just felt like they had to fight really hard to be taken seriously and believed when they were
1: complaining to their healthcare providers. Mm, Yeah. And I see that. You know, I was on... I just had a book come out. I was on a book tour, a 12-city book tour. And the real reason why I wanted to be on that book tour was to hear women's stories. I wanted to understand a little bit about their experiences. And every story that I heard, women had felt ignored or women didn't, they hadn't been told what was going on with their bodies. And for so many years, weren't given the right diagnostic. I remember I met a woman, particularly with Hajimoto's who they had seen antibodies, they saw something, but ignored it and didn't diagnose it. And it wasn't until almost 20 years later that she finally got the diagnosis of Hajimoto's and her thyroid was completely not functioning. And I I was, as I was talking on the stage, it was that moment that she realized she put it together and she came up to me and she just wanted validation. She's like, was that when we should have known And I, it was so hard to have to tell her yes, you know, but I knew she knew that, but to be, I felt like the bearer of bad news, you know, in that moment. So tell me a little bit about, you know, this whole book is so chock full of research, but what are some of the biggest ways that you see the medical system is failing our women patients, our female patients today?
0: So in the, I sort of lay out two big problems that I think are, are really kind of at the root of, of the issue and really are kind of mutually reinforcing. So on the one hand, we have a knowledge gap when it comes to women's health. So we just don't know as much about women's bodies, about their response to treatments, about conditions that disproportionately affect us. And this is, of course, the legacy of of many years when women were outright excluded or really underrepresented in clinical research, when we really until recently haven't paid attention to sex and gender differences and, and disease progression or symptoms or risk factors and then i think that big issue really kind of combines in very dangerous ways with what i call the trust gap so it's just this tendency to not believe women's own self reports of their symptoms you know especially when it's symptoms that are subjective like pain or fatigue where you really have to trust the patient's own report of of what they're experiencing in their bodies and as we know all too many women do have those stories of not being believed, being told that, you know, it's just stress or depression or anxiety, or even that they're making it up or that it's somehow normal. You know, I think that's another big way that women's symptoms are often dismissed where, you know, it's, you know, that's just normal cramps or that's menopause or that's just pregnancy or being a new mom. You know, there's always seems to be sort of a excuse and i think what was really striking for me was how those two problems the knowledge gap and the trust gap really are mutually reinforcing so the the less we know about women's bodies the more we kind of dismiss any unexplained symptoms as all in their head and and the more that we sort of turn to that stereotype that women are are hysterical and and Prone to anxiety or stress, the less we will re- really invest in, in the research that we need to do to explain their
1: symptoms and, and, and know more about what's going on in our bodies. Mm. And you mentioned the hysteria, feeling hysterical. You know, I think you and I have both grown up with, you know, having women being told that they are hysterical, or, but there's a lot of grounding. There's a lot of medical grounding. I didn't realize at the time until I read the book that at one point that was diagnosable.
0: Right, right. Yeah, this was, I think, a really big surprise for me too. I think I, I sort of went into the research thinking, okay, I, I sort of know that, like, back in the 19th century, hysteria was an actual diagnosis, but I kind of felt like, you know, that was some kind of strange 19th century Victorian thing that felt really far away. But as the book kind of shows, that that sort of history really does impact the care that we receive today. So the hysteria sort of evolved in, in various ways over the past century. And that word itself is no longer used as a diagnostic label, but it kind of splintered into these various other diagnostic categories like conversion disorder, or somatoform disorders, and is a really big reason why women do so often find that they're being treated as if their symptoms are all in their head or psychogenic because there is this tendency to, to have this category of, of disease that is all in your head and also to have this stereotype that the kind of typical patient with hysterical symptoms has, is a woman and has been a woman for a very long
1: time. Mm, that was a big kind of aha moment for me when I was reading the book is how that diagnosis has probably played a huge role in the knowledge gap or in the trust gap, that it's influenced so much of what's happening today. In chapter four, you're talking about autoimmune diseases. And as we know, one of the biggest, most crippling conditions that we have here in the country, and it's it's the fastest growing as well. And I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis about a year ago, but we kept missing the diagnosis. And there were two big reasons why we kept missing it. One, I had other chronic hormone issues in the past, and we thought, And as a practitioner, I should never self-diagnose. And I know this, (laughs) but we kept running labs and not that I wasn't having good doctors looking at it, but my thyroid stimulating hormone labs were looking pretty normal, but we weren't running full panels and it just, it just kept getting missed. It kept getting missed until we finally ran the most exhaustive thyroid panel we could find. And sure enough, it was subclinical, but it was very obvious that the antibody count was very out of control. And so I was thinking about that and how often when I tell this story that therein lies the problem. We are not allowing women the diagnostics, the testing that they really need to make these definitive decisions. One of the things that was really not surprising to me, but kind of Bothersome to me was how often doctors have a very kind of a high normal or out of the scope of what we would consider a real normal, and we are constantly missing this diagnosis. Do you find that in a lot of tests for women and a lot of diagnostics for women that our normals are just off or that we're misinterpreting it altogether?
0: I think it's definitely true that in the autoimmune disease section, I think that that is a good example where. It, in a lot of autoimmune diseases, patients will find that the, there is this really kind of laser focus on the testing. And if you're just slightly outside of that, even when you're reporting symptoms that are you know, in line with a particular diagnosis, if you're not testing positive on these definitive lab results, then oh, well, nothing's wrong with you, right? And and so I, there does seem to be at least a tendency to really cling to the, that kind of objective evidence more when it comes to women. And I can certainly imagine that that tendency might, might lead to some kind of stricter, normal reference ranges for female-specific diseases versus others. And I think that Apart from the gender component, I do think that that is a, a big problem, kind of writ large, you know, with this kind of cookie cutter approach to patients that really doesn't acknowledge that, of course, when we're talking about what is normal when it comes to thyroid health, we're, we're always talking about kind of imposing a binary onto what is really a spectrum here, and there will always be outliers, and, and you know, the only way that you can really ensure that the individual gets the right diagnosis is to really look at the, the whole picture. And unfortunately for women, especially, I think what happens is that when part of the picture is, is the woman complaining of symptoms that, that can't be confirmed via a test, it's all too easy to kind of dismiss those entirely and not, not let those influence the diagnosis at all when they obviously should be at least part of how you come to a diagnosis.
1: Absolutely. So, just guess we could say that. Yay! Glad that they're you know women are being looked at. There is more testing being done, but so often we're seeing that women don't even get to that point where they're getting tested. They're just getting ignored. Let's say that it's anxiety or it's too much stress or they just had a baby or you know all the all the excuses that women could be having for for ignoring those symptoms as being something bigger. Right. Right.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it is. I mean, it. It is amazing just, you know, how many women will be told, oh, well, nothing's wrong with you on the basis of a very minimal amount of testing or none at all, you know, and autoimmune again is a great example because part of the problem is that a lot of primary care doctors, you know, just don't know how to really properly test for a range of autoimmune problems. There isn't a specialist in autoimmune diseases. And so, so many women do kind of fall through those cracks where they're not even getting the testing at all. Or if they are, they're not getting tested by folks who really know how to interpret those results, especially if they're sort of borderline or women have often have multiple autoimmune diseases and, and that can complicate the clinical picture. The most disturbing thing is how many women don't even get to that point where they're just being dismissed without any testing whatsoever. Mm, I absolutely agree.
1: You know, and that leads me to this next question. And, you know, it's so interesting. Like, I'm so grateful that when you were being diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, that the doctor was, was aware and that they were paying attention and they were like, hmm, if symptomology isn't happening yet, it could be happening down the road in a couple of months, which is what happened. Because we know that the immune system, you know, they target whatever tissue that is, but it's going to take a while for things to really start to show up you know in terms of pathology in that way you know when i i about 10 years ago i knew that something was wrong with my hormones i just knew something wasn't right you know you just you know your body and something isn't and i remember going to get tested, because it's always a good idea to, to run tests just to kind of confirm what's going on. And this OBGYN handed me birth control and anti-anxiety meds. And I remember looking down at these prescriptions and I looked at her and it was a her. And I was like, I'm not, this isn't it. This is not the solution to this problem. You know, and and I never fulfilled those. And and I was, you know, the one thing that I had for me is I already had you know I was clearly in practice but I was a biochemist I was a researcher by trade and so I knew that the answer was there and this was just 10 years ago which really blows my mind how far even 10 years ago we've come but I knew that this was the standard of care that so many women were getting when it wasn't even the the root cause solution for what's going on And let's say we have a woman who is something isn't right. They know something isn't right. They're finally queuing into it. And and that's after probably ignoring a lot of it for a long time. I think that even in our society, a lot of things that I heard when I was first feeling these symptoms was that women tell women that these things are normal. You know, oh, it's normal to be tired. Oh, it's normal to have brain fog. Oh, it's normal to not sleep. You know, these are things that, oh, these are just how women feel. So I find that that proliferates within society, not just even in the medical system. But let's say we are beginning to feel like something isn't right and we don't know what's going on and we're finally the alarm bells are really going off. How do we begin to navigate this system? How do we get what we want? How do we demand what we want when we know something isn't right? a
0: huge question. I think it is a really big challenge. Well, first of all, one of the things I was very struck by in in my interviews with so many women who have had experiences where they were dismissed was to realize just how, how destabilizing it is when you know something is wrong in your body and are are seeking help from healthcare providers and are being told, you know, nothing's wrong. It's just stress. you know, I think that we all sort of, I know that I kind of like to assume that if that were happening to me, I would, you know, stand my ground and and say, no, you know, I know my body and trust my instincts here. But I think it is, we can't underestimate just how much kind of cultural authority medical professionals still have in this culture. And, And so even women, I think, who are very educated and have a lot of authority in other parts of their lives, often find that when they're in that position, it becomes very difficult to kind of push back and, and question this person that you've been taught is the expert. So I think first we should acknowledge that that, that is a big challenge. And, and if you're, you're feeling like it's it's hard to do, it's I, you're definitely not alone. And I think the other big challenge here is that the advice to sort of advocate for yourself, you know, get a second opinion or a third or a fourth or fifth, you know, is really good advice and certainly is better than the alternative. But I think women are often caught in these real catch-22s where, you know, you you obviously want to advocate for yourself, but you also don't want to come across as the really demanding patient who, you know, thinks she knows better than the doctor because, of course, a lot of doctors don't like that at all and There's just so many ways where pushing for the care that you need is, is sort of required, but at the same time, it's, it's the fine line between doing that and kind of antagonizing people who, you know, ultimately still have a lot of power over you and and the care that you receive.
1: Mm, I agree with that. Absolutely. You know, this is a a topic of conversation that I have a lot on the podcast. This particular podcast is all about women becoming the CEO of their health. And, you know, one of the things I've recognized over the years is that we do have a lot more control over things. You know, there's a lot of things that we get. We can take that power back a little bit. However, that's one thing to feel that way here at home. It's another thing to go into the medical system. Is there I mean, clearly we want to reverse engineer and get what we want. Right. And ultimately, what we want is to be well, is to get better maybe it is just, I mean, I know we got to be mindful about doing too much research and coming on in there. You know, a lot of doctors aren't going to tell you what you want to hear. Goodness knows when I got those prescriptions, I just chucked them in the trash. Like I was like, this isn't for me. And this is sure as hell, heck, not going to get me what I want. I went in there really for the labs and then went off and, and went to go do my own research I know that that's not the case for everybody. That's why probably one of the most powerful things I think that we have out there right now, because there are, thank goodness, a plethora of us doing this good work, right? Really challenging the status quo. And in trying to provide women with that that knowledge base and education, would you recommend, one, reading your book or reading other books to get clarity on what's going on? You know, some of my dear friends are are who I consider to be leading experts in, in autoimmune disease or leading experts in hormone care or leading experts in cancer. You know, would those be types of resources that we should recommend so women just feel a little bit more prepared going into that conversation?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I certainly hope that that my book will, at the very least, empower women just by giving them more of the background and context and this kind of historical legacy so that they, they do understand sort of what they're stepping into and I hope will sort of engender a bit more healthy skepticism, you know, if they are being told nothing's wrong or just a kind of awareness that medical knowledge does have limits and medical professionals like anybody else are just human beings who are sometimes making mistakes. And, and so, and sometimes severely unhealthy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Sick in their own right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I think that just having that knowledge and also the knowledge that other women are often having the same experiences can be really empowering. You know, I think so many people that I have heard from since the book came out, you know, have said, oh yeah, I had experiences like this, but I I thought it was just me. You know, I think that there is this tendency to assume that, these frustrating dismissive experiences in the medical system are kind of the results of individual bad luck or you know you just you know it was one bad apple or even that like maybe you could have done something better to advocate for yourself and so I think it really does sort of require starting to to speak up about these experiences and talk to other women and, and realize just how widespread they actually are to have that moment of realization that like oh no this is not about me these stories really do reflect these larger systemic problems in the system. So yeah, I, I think that that learning more about other people's experiences can be helpful. And and you know, yeah, as you say, I think we do live in a time where there is so much information online and, and so many patient communities that are really sharing knowledge, tips and advice and you know, emotional support. And I think that certainly all of that is something that you should utilize if you can. And my sort of hesitancy about it is just that I, you know, I, on the one hand, I find all of that really inspiring. And I think it's wonderful that women are are sharing knowledge in those ways. But I also always come back to the fact that it shouldn't be like this, you know, that we should be able to not do research, you know, and to go to the doctor and, and be totally uneducated about our condition and, and not do any work to be the CEO of our own healthcare and still get good medical care. And so that's my sort of long-term goal is that, is that <laughs> this kind of all of the, the work and, and research that women are at this point really often required to do to get the, the medical care that they deserve will not actually be required of us so much.
1: I've had issues with my health since I was a little girl. I I had chronic migraines for 15 years and, and I grew up thinking, you know, that the doctors had, well, they clearly didn't have solutions for me because I had migraines for 15 years. And, and, but I relinquished my, I mean, as a little girl too, but I, we kept relinquishing and relinquishing and relinquishing. We didn't take a lot of responsibility as well. And when, and mind you, there was not a lot I had control over. I had some head trauma that led to the problems and, and, um, but eventually at the age of 24, I went to a functional practice and they really figured they, no one had known why. And we figured out why I had that, what was the driver of this. And within three months I was migraine free. And that was the start of my entire my entire life's work. Really, just it shifted my paradigm in such a way where I was like, "Oh my gosh, our body is it has this innate, innate ability to heal," and I'm about to go become a medical doctor. And I'm going to just be on the same path that they were on. And I was like, I don't know if that's going to actually get rid of people's migraines. Like, you know, I thought to myself that there's got to be a different way. And that's how it shaped my entire philosophy around wellness. It's like, oh, my goodness, what is our bodies really capable of? What kind of shifts and changes can we make? How can we get to the core root of what is going on? Why is the immune system targeting joint tissue or heart valves or or thyroid tissue? What's going on with this molecular mimicry? And that's really what I'm so interested in. In was like, but then we start to look at it. I was like, oh my gosh, there's ways that we can eat. There's ways that we can fill nutri- nutrient deficiencies. And not to say that we shouldn't have doctors that guide us on that path, but you know, there's a lot of ways where we get to take a little bit of that back. That it's our bodies. We, we get some of that. Not to say that the medical system hasn't been ruin women for quite some time in terms of how to take care of them. But I feel like it's in a path where we get to start voting for the type of health care that we want with our buying power as well. And, and the only concern I have around new functional medicine and really looking at the type of diagnostics that you don't get in normal standard medicine is that it's expensive, right? That's, that's a big issue for that. And how do we give women? How do we give people what they need without it being so pricey? And I, you know, I think books are one of the best ways to do that because you know books are not—they're not expensive. You know, there it's a really inexpensive way to get educated. Outside of that, it's kind of my little my little tangent there. When you look at the systemic issues in the medical system, I'm always thinking about, and I'm always talking with other functional doctors and, and you know, the, the, the 3% of us out there, how do we change the system? How do we change it for women? How do we, besides making little micro changes by creating our own practices, right? Where women can kind of seek us out there. But again, not, not a very cheap option here. How do we begin to change some of the most systemic problems that we see in the medical system that are constantly missing a lot of what's going on with women?
0: I think there are a few that would really help shift things a lot. You know, one is is just that to the extent that the problem is is about this knowledge gap, it's about working to get a lot of the new knowledge that has emerged over the last few decades integrated into medical education. So I think part of the knowledge gap is just the result of this sort of lingering effect of the fact that a lot of the research on female-specific conditions or sex and gender differences that we have done has yet to be fully taught to the next generation. You know, I think that that is just a sort of unsurprising result of the fact that it just takes a long time for medical education to evolve, and it's kind at of least hard. a
1: decade, right? At yeah. least,
0: at least, yeah. <laughs> and things are always shifting, and everybody wants new things in the curricula. But I think really, sort of getting the medical profession to see that as a real priority and sort of make a systemic attempt to make these changes and updates to the curricula would be really powerful. And I think that there is some kind of hopeful evidence that a lot of younger med students and younger doctors really want that knowledge and, you know, recognize that they're being really left ill-equipped to treat half of their patients as well as they can treat the other half. And so want to learn about things like bulvodinia or sex differences and you know immunology, and the more that we can sort of raise awareness about the fact that that there is this knowledge gap, I think that more and more doctors will sort of demand that. I think especially on when it comes to this trust gap, one of the potential solutions that I've been really excited about is getting better systems in place so that doctors are getting feedback on their diagnostic errors. So this is one of the huge things that I learned from experts in diagnostic errors in my research is that, you know, one of the big problems is just that doctors really overestimate their diagnostic prowess. They think that diagnostic errors happen, but it's kind of the other guy who, who makes them. They personally don't think that they err all the time, and that's because if when they do, they often don't hear, that they got it wrong because the patient, if she's told, you know, it's, it's just stress or whatever, she'll often go to another doctor and then another and another, another, and maybe four years down the road, she'll get diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, but because she often doesn't go back to the first doctor she saw, they don't get that memo. And so they sort of still have the impression that she was, you know, this, hysterical woman <laughs> complaining of you know fatigue and pain and and nothing came of it so i think a really powerful way to kind of break that self-perpetuating cycle is to really get those that feedback in place so that that doctors are learning and not just assuming that
1: if they never hear from the patient again that means that nothing was really wrong Mm. So basically that feedback is just not getting back and you're seeing that shifting, that there is ways that we're we're holding doctors more accountable for misdiagnosis or maybe missing a diagnosis altogether.
0: I think we are sort of seeing individuals, one way to kind of fix that problem is to kind of make call for women to, you know, go back to the people, you know, let the people who would misdiagnosed you or missed your diagnosis know that they were wrong and they missed something. And, and I've heard from women who have done that, um, which I think, yeah, can be really powerful. But, you know, again, I, I don't think that it should actually be on individual women and patients to give that feedback. And I think that, I think there is kind of increasing recognition in at least some sectors of the medical profession that it is a huge failure that there aren't more systemic feedback systems in place so that it's not just that if, if the patient happens to go back to the doctor, then he'll find out, but otherwise he'll assume he got it right. You know, that, that we actually need to come up with really systemic level solutions so that that feedback is happening on an ongoing basis so that people can learn from their mistakes and think, Oh, okay. So it seems like I've, missed a bunch of autoimmune diseases that means that i should probably get more training in how to diagnose these diseases Since so many of the women that i thought were stressed actually turned out to have you know hashimoto's or whatever Um, so i think that kind of sort of learning is is not happening but really um would be a powerful way to shift
1: things if if it started to a little bit more Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So really just taking a look. So having that level, maybe kind of a checks and balances in that in the medical system we've entered an age, you know, where we're in social media, people are reviewing everything, people are more, they're really advocating what's going on with themselves. And let's say, for instance, I post something, you know, people will come out of the woodwork and kind of talk a little bit about what's going on with them and trying to figure out what's going on with them. Do you think that a lot of women being more aware of their bodies, more aware that something isn't right, and we're, we're talking more about that, is that playing a role in the the younger doctors being more curious or wishing that they had more of this information out there as they see that women are becoming more vocal because i think for so long women just weren't necessarily vocal at all about what was going on with their bodies we oftentimes aren't the ones who are shouting out the symptoms not until it's a major problem
0: mhm yeah i think that's definitely true and you know especially for conditions that are sort of stigmatized in past generations. I think there was just so much silence around something like vulvodynia or, you know, other conditions that cause pain during sex or endometriosis that, you know, I think the fact that younger women are are more comfortable sharing about their bodies and their sex lives and they're just about a lot of things that I think older generations where are just kind of talking about it has definitely shifted things and is changing things both for patients and for doctors so i think you know it's it's incredible to think about how for a patient the experience is so much different now that if you're diagnosed or you're having a, a problem you can go online and you can usually often very quickly find a whole community of of other patients and find out that you're not alone and hopefully get some tips or maybe find out an expert that you can go to to get a diagnosis versus just you know 20 years ago even and certainly in the 80s and 90s when so many of the the women that I spoke to back then who were being diagnosed with things like chronic pain conditions or vulvodynia just spoke to how isolating it was where, you know, not only were you being dismissed in the medical system, but you were being told, you know, you're the only person who has this. It's you're the only person in the world and you had no access to find other people in your same boat. So I think that that has been powerful for patients just in terms of the kind of validation. Um, and certainly I I do agree that, that as, as more doctors are sort of, um, yeah, see, seeing seeing folks share their stories in the media or on social media, um, it's raising awareness about a, a lot of things that otherwise um,
1: would, have been, would have been really kind of remained in, shrouded in silence. Hmm. I've noticed that we're focusing all of a sudden, no one was talking about pelvic pain or endometriosis or the four types of PCOS. And now we have so much clarity on that. And it's being advocated that, that people are, are starting to talk about it. And that conversation leads to, I mean, it clearly leads into the, in, into the doctor's office. And I think doctors, you know, are finding, as is, is you and I both know, the curriculum for women's health and just women's conditions is very scant in the medical system and especially in medical school. But I think the more and more these things are being brought up, my hope is that there's gonna be a more pressing demand for this type of education inside of the curriculum. Right now, even we're looking at the possibility of endometriosis being an autoimmune condition. And, you know, that hadn't been discussed up until probably the last five years or so. And it really changes the complexity of of what endometriosis is. And I don't think it would have been investigated if we didn't start to really see those pieces and women really sharing what was going on with them and putting it together. Right. And so I don't think that the medical system knows this yet. (laughs) But at least we're talking about it and we're looking into it. There are researchers looking at this now. And hopefully in the next several years, we'll be able to tag endometriosis a little bit differently. And that'll change the type of care we give our patients there.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there's so much power in women sharing their stories, their experiences with diseases, so much knowledge to really be tapped there. And I think smart researchers would recognize that there there is so much untapped kind of potential to do research on women's conditions and also to kind of just ask women who have often been living with conditions that have been really under-researched for so long that they are really The true experts at this point. Um, There's just so much data that could be mined there. And I think there's also so much power in women sharing their stories of, of misdiagnosis because I think that that's another, again, I think that part of the problem is that healthcare providers do not recognize how big of a problem this is. And so the more that we can kind of share our stories to just illustrate to our peers and family members and friends who are in the medical industry that this happens a lot more than you probably recognize. I think that that can kind of put it on the radar and, and get people thinking, you know, hmm, like how many, how many women have I maybe overlooked their autoimmune disease or endometriosis
1: and kind of think back on, on their own history there. Absolutely. Yeah. I was with a woman, I was in a wedding just this last weekend and one of the bridesmaids lost her mom to ovarian cancer. And I remember reading the conclusion of your book just a couple of days ago. And it's one of those conditions that were just kind of, you know, we knew that it was usually diagnosed late stage because quote unquote, there wasn't early symptoms for it. So it was just kind of one of those things that we just let go of because there was nothing we could do about it. And come to find out there are symptoms and diagnostic awareness that we should be looking at, but we just kept ignoring. I was remember just hearing her story of her mom. It was just so heartbreaking because she was very much one of those statistics in a lot of ways. And I don't know the full extent or the full story of it, but clearly it was caught late and it was very far progressed by the time that they caught that and it just kind of connected those two dots in that moment, you know and thinking that yeah we have to do better. This can't be acceptable. So it was just one of those, those moments that I was reading at the end of the book. As we're finishing up, is there any anything else you want to share? Anything really, I mean, clearly we know we got some problems here. And, and, and I'm always trying to think about, okay, what's the silver lining? What's the hope in all of this? Is there anything that, as you were doing this research and you were beginning to see kind of evolution of where we may be going, was there a glimmer of hope as to, you know, changing the way that we took care of women in this system?
0: Again, I, I do think that I find hope in in the fact that so many women do seem to be sharing their stories and and breaking the silence around these things. You know, there's been so many women writing memoirs and documentary films, and I think a real there's a real sense of of movement on this issue that I think hasn't existed even three years ago when I was starting my book research in earnest and. Yeah, I think that that really does have the potential to put these problems on the radar in a big way. And I think that it, we're also starting to see, I hope starting to see this issue kind of get put on the radar as as a feminist issue, you know, and this my background is as a feminist writer and it's it's sort of still surprising to me that these problems haven't been sort of taken up with more urgency in, in the feminist movement. And the more that we can kind of make the point that this, you know, the medical system is just yet another realm where women's voices are not taken seriously and and are disbelieved. And, you know, there are clear parallels between the dismissal of women symptoms and, you know, the dismissal of women who report rape or gender-based violence. And so I think that there's a lot of potential for a kind of united front to say, you know, so many of our problems lie at root in this distrust of women. And and to overcome them, we need to start really listening to women.
1: Mm, I absolutely agree. My honey, thank you so much for coming on and not only sharing your wisdom, sharing your insight. Where can we find you? We know we got to go get the book, right? Doing Harm. It's on Amazon. It's on all the places books are being sold. But where else can we learn more about you?
0: Yeah, you can go to my website is mayadusenberry.com. And there's more information on the book there. And you can also find me on
1: Twitter at Maya Dusenberry. Thank you so much, honey. I will have all of that in the show notes, you guys. I'll have the link to the book all ready to ready to go. Maya, again, thank you so much for doing this powerful work. I am so grateful to women like you who are helping to change and shape the way that we take care of women in the medical system. Well, thank you so much. And likewise, thanks for your work. The one thing that I took away from the book and from Maya today was the upward battle we still have in the healthcare system as women. Even though there were moments that felt like doom and gloom during this interview, I promise you that there are doctors out there fighting for you, including me. I have been blessed to bring on so many of those doctors here on the podcast. Together, we can demand different And we can also start voting with our buying power. Even though it can be uncomfortable, it's important that we are vocal to our doctors or have someone who can advocate for us when we are going in with symptoms or something that just doesn't feel right in our bodies. Now, the one thing that Maya and I saw a little bit differently is helping women to step into their power and become the CEO of their health. I agree with Maya that we shouldn't have to advocate so hard to get the standard of care that we deserve. But on the other hand, our health is ours, not doctors or insurance companies. It belongs to us. It's our bodies. And as I said earlier and throughout this podcast, there is so much that we have control over. If you're wondering where to start to get more educated, this podcast is where it's at. And if you're looking for a resource, especially for women's hormone health, you know you can just go pick up my newest best selling book, The Essential Oils Hormone Solution. It is an amazing resource for understanding your hormone and your cellular function. Plus, I provide you with a solid blueprint to jumpstart your health in just 14 days. Now, if you are more interested in checking out Maya's book, Doing Harm, because you want to see the extensive research that she went in to go into that and really get an understanding of the systemic issue that we are dealing with when it comes to women's health. I highly recommend you go check out Doing Harm. It will be in the show notes. I'll have the link to the book in the show notes. This is episode 86, by the way. I just can't believe it. So you can go to drmarisa.com slash episode 86. Also, it's on Amazon and anywhere books are sold. I will have the links there. And I just want to say thank you so much for stopping by and listening into this podcast interview. Now, our next podcast is going to be equally amazing. I am interviewing a dear friend, Jennifer Iserol, and we're going to be talking about her newest book and why we can do self-care even in the midst of a hectic life because goodness knows not every day is super smooth selling there are definitely going to be days where they feel hectic and that's what jennifer and i really connected on was how do we create this self-care how do we take care of our bodies even when life is moving a million miles an hour so i can't wait for you to jump on and listen to this beautiful interview with me and jennifer in the meantime have an amazing day can't wait to see you soon